the Lauren Bond and the Metabolic Studio offers the Explorers Club to share meaningful journeys, encounters, and projects in an intimate setting at the Metabolic Studio. Session 26, September 8, 2016, features Steve Rowell and his presentation, Dark Hydrology and the Rose Coalition Watershed Website. Let's tune in, connect, and listen. Yeah, well, thanks for coming, everybody. Thank you, Lauren, for asking me to be here. It's very nice. I'm going to trip over this chair if I'm not careful. Um, yeah, I'm going to read a little bit. So I'll be sort of facing this way. So I apologize if I'm turning my back on you guys. But um, don't take it personally. Um, <clears throat> the sound, is that okay? In terms of no feedback problems? Is that good? Yeah, I think yeah, so. Cool. Uh, so I'll be reading a little bit, and then I'll just go over... Um, I'm going to illustrate what I'm, I guess, <laughs> introducing by the idea of dark hydrology uh, with two recent works of mine that I created in the last year. And then I'll, um, as Lauren was saying, I'll talk a bit about this proposed project, um, this online resource for people that uh, sort of draws all this together and then brings in projects like bending the uh, river back to the city um, into it. But uh, first, I guess I should explain a little bit what dark hydrology um, means. Um, <clears throat> do you guys know much about... Um, well, there's a writer in particular that I'm drawing from. So Dark Ecology is a book by a writer named uh, Timothy Morton. Anybody here read much stuff or know about Timothy Morton by any chance? Good, yeah. A few people? Yes, a few. Good, good. Um, he's kind of got a name for himself recently, going around talking about this sort of thing. Uh, but he, writes a lot, he, he writes about art, which is kind of interesting. So he doesn't talk about just the philosophy of ecology and dark ecology, but he talks about how art fits into this uh, pretty nicely. So I'll just I'll sort of read a bit. I've got some quotes from him to help explain uh, what this is, and then I'll sort of turn it over uh, and talk about hydrology, which is really just kind of a specific you know, part of ecology. Um, so dark hydrology is a reference, obviously, to this, this book that he published this year, actually, 2016. Over the past couple of years, he's written a number of books uh, outlining this idea of an ecological thought, which differs from this romantic notion of nature. Uh, and this is where things get kind of controversial. He begins to explain with this idea, um, about this idea in ecology without nature, from 2007, a book which is about art and environmental aesthetics. Uh, the ecological thought from 2010, he shows that the ecological thought is not nice and green as a celebration of all things natural, but it, to really to think about the interconnectedness of all forms of life and all things are like a mesh uh, is actually quite dark. <clears throat> so what does dark mean? Dark ecology puts hesitation, uncertainty, irony, and thoughtfulness back into ecological thinking. So again, we're sort of breaking from this romantic uh, notion of what is nature. In fact, he actually takes on the term nature itself as something which is artificial and, and constructed. Um, the form of dark ecology is that of noir film. This is actually a quote from him, sorry. The noir narrator begins investigating a supposedly external situation from a supposedly neutral point of view, only to discover that she or he is implicated within it. The point of view of the narrator herself becomes stained with desire. There is no meta position from which we can make ecological pronouncements. Ironically, this applies in particular to the sunny affirmative rhetoric of environmental ideology. A more honest ecological art would linger in the shadowy world of irony and difference. The ecological thought includes negativity and irony, ugliness, and horror, because that's what's surrounding us. Um, 
uh, in case you're wondering what the image is on the screen, by the way, I'll, I'll talk a bit more about that. But it's, it's, it's a particular ugly story <laughs> uh, from Southern California that relates to uh, Arrowhead bottled water. So you already kind of get a sense of where this is going, I think. Um, in Realist Magic 2013, Timothy Morton sides with object-oriented ontology, um, strain of uh, philosophy currently being discussed quite a bit, and particularly with the ideas of the American philosopher Graham Harmon to further explain how we can conceive of the world. He continues this trajectory in, in the book Hyperobjects from 2014, Hyperobjects, subtitled Philosophy and Ecology After the End of the World, which you know is loaded and says a lot. Right there. In this book, he explains what a hyperobject is. Global warming, for instance, is a hyperobject, and what the end of the world means for philosophy. So, a quick quote about what a hyperobject is. Since this is getting down that road pretty quickly, hyperobjects are directly responsible for what I call the end of the world. This is Morton speaking, rendering both denialism and apocalyptic environmentalism obsolete. What comes into view for humans at this moment is precisely the end of the world brought about by the encroachment of hyperobjects, one of which is assuredly Earth itself, and its geological cycles demand a geophilosophy that doesn't simply think in terms of human events and human significance. There is no a way after the end of the world that would make more sense design in a dark ecological way, admitting our coexistence with to toxic substances we have created and exploited. So he's talking a bit about this idea that, <clears throat> you know, the object that surround us uh, actually kind of define space. I mean, there is no such thing as just a waste space. There's no such thing as just, you know, literally waste nothingness. Everything has some somethingness. That there's like objects to everything. Another quote quickly, which kind of explains this idea of object-oriented ontology a bit further. Quote, there are objects, cinnamon, microwaves, interstellar particles, and scarecrows. There is nothing underneath objects. There is no such thing as space independent of objects. Happily, contemporary physics actually agree with this finally. What is called universe is a large object that contains objects such as black holes and racing pigeons. He likes to kind of ex include these extreme differences to explain his, his sort of thought process. Likewise, there's no such thing as an environment. What we look at when we find all kinds, what we look at when we look at environment, we find all kinds of objects, biomes, ecosystems, hedges, gutters, human flesh, etc. In a similar sense, there's no such thing as nature. And this is where he pisses off a lot of people. <laughs> he says that, I've seen pigeons, plutonium, pollution, and pollen, but I've yet seen nature. Uh, and he capitalizes the word nature because it is, in his mind, sort of an artificial construct. So, uh, so that's end quote there to that. Uh, this is kind of where these ideas, again, do upset quite a few environmentalists. Nature is a human-applied concept of space around us, which is actually a dense, interconnected mesh of objects, whether that be solid, liquid, or gas. Uh, and these things appear as things in space, but they are not yet under our control. So nature is that which is not under human control. Uh, we are summoned by which we consider to be wild and human. Uh, and, of course, we are, sorry, we are surrounded by what we consider to be wild. And we humans are bent on controlling and dominating this nature. Uh, or at least some, as we all know, especially those of us in this room, there are some of us that are trying to not only preserve wilderness, but those of us actually interested in rewilding places, not just conceptually, but in action. Um, and part of that um, action has to be art. So as artists, uh, we do, I think, see ourselves as people that are actively trying to not just preserve a sense of wildness or wilderness, but actually to, to create rewild uh, places or spaces. Um, and the work I do is, is conceptual in nature, and it, uh, I think, actively rewilds places just through the 
the documentation and the representation of place. Um, of course, you could argue, you know, how does a film in a gallery setting do that? Uh, but I think there's much more to art than, than just the gallery setting or the, you know, the non-gallery setting or whatever setting that art occurs in in the real world in the case of the, the metabolic studio projects. Um, this representation, this, idea, this presentation, sorry, that I'm doing here called Dark Hydrology acknowledges that catastrophic environmental damage has already been done. Uh, but it also presents a speculative future of hope and some sort of remediation. So in a way, it's kind of a dark optimism <laughs> that I've been uh, embracing the last few years. Um, and that, you know, at, when I was reading Morton's work, I kind of realized that these two things were thread together really nicely. And so I kind of finally figured out, I, I finally found a writer who articulates what I was unable to articulate in my sort of understanding of things that are not understandable, right? The sort of things that are beyond comprehension. Um, because... We look at things like radioactive landscapes, we can't really comprehend what that means, right? We can't comprehend what the, what the durational aspect of that is. Um, we can understand the science behind it in terms of how it happened and what's happening at this very given point, but to actually imagine something in the future, that's, that's almost an impossibility. Um, but that's also where I think art comes in, as the only way that we can possibly, the only language that we can possibly use to, to really define or to really explain some of these otherwise uh, non or inexplainable things. Um, so what I'm going to do is just present uh, through illustration a couple of projects that talk about not just this idea of dark ecology or dark hydrology, but, but uh, actually represent particular places that may or may not help explain the project that I'll be talking about later, which is this coalition of watersheds. Um, that I think we're calling the Rose Coalition of Watersheds, but we're not exactly sure yet because the name Rose raises a lot of questions, and rather than try to answer those right now, I'll just sort of leave it <laughs> as that. Let's call it Rose Coalition of Watersheds for today. Um, so quickly, let me just jump on to this. Uh, whoops. This is my website. Uh, this is a project that I did in 2015 in the fall, so just last October, almost a year ago today. Uh, I was commissioned by Harvey Mudd College out at Claremont to do a project about bottled water because they were doing a series of talks um, around the notion of, of water, drought, but especially about how water is misused in California. Um, and they wanted me to uh, find an aspect of, of, the, of the drought situation that, that made sense to exhibit during one of the panels they had, but also leave up as an exhibition for the duration of the semester at, at the gallery at Harvey Mudd uh, so that students can uh, learn from and sort of interact with. So you can't read that text, but that's okay. Um, I just wanted to sort of explain it a bit. Uh, what I decided to do was look at bottled water because drought obviously was a huge issue last summer. I mean, it still is and always will be for, you know, for the indefinite future. But particularly with the way things were happening last summer with the extreme drought, um, there was a lawsuit that was filed against not Arrowhead or Nestle Water, who owns Arrowhead, but the U.S. Forest Service, who is basically responsible for allowing companies like Arrowhead or Nestle to draw public resource water and privatize it and, and sell it as bottled product. Um, so it just so happened that the lawsuit hit just when I was researching the project. It was kind of a nice bit of coincidence. Um, back in July, I began researching this particular site, actually numerous sites that Nestle owns. Um, 
because they're drawing millions of gallons of, of fresh water from public resources, from aquifers and from springs, and then, of course, bottling them, selling, to, selling them to citizens of Southern California, which is kind of a nice dark irony right there, isn't it, that we're paying $3 for a bottle of water that should have just come out of the mountainside and, and, and been used for something else besides bottling. Uh, and then the lawsuit hit when I was basically in the middle of, of filming the project. So what I did is I, I went and first I mapped all the locations, and then I filmed video and photos of the different uh, bottling plants, but also the actual springs themselves. So some quick photos here to look at. Let me see if I can increase the size of that a bit. This is um, a bottling plant that Nestle owns under the name Arrowhead waters on Morongo Reservation land, which is out near Cabazon. This is the drone's eye view, of course, uh, looking down at it. Um, so what they've done is they've managed to strike a deal with the Morongo Reservation to take an unknown amount of water from the San Bernardino Mountains, which is just to the left, off to the left of the image. Um, and that's questionable because the Morongo tribe does not want to tell how much water is being taken or how much they're charging for it. And, of course, the problem is that the water that runs through their reservation land actually comes from non-reservation land, which is state-owned above it in the mountaintops. Um, so it just it gets complicated, right? And there's no way of knowing whose water it is at some point. And those are the sort of uh, conflicts that I'm actually sort of trying to tease out with this project. Uh, it's one of the biggest water uh, bottling plants in, in California, for sure. This is... Um, the springs, again, the drawn eye uh, view of the springs over uh, or beneath Strawberry Creek. Um, Nestle does not own Strawberry Creek. The U.S. government owns it. And in fact, I guess that would be a public ownership. So we, the people, <laughs> own Strawberry Creek. Uh, but they take all the water that comes from Strawberry Creek through a series of siphons. And you can't see in this photograph, but there are a series of thin metal pipelines about three or four inches across that basically just stick into the rock, taking the water, siphoning it directly out of the mountainside, and then channeling it through a network of pipelines down to what was a abandoned, or what is an abandoned um, resort town uh, at Arrowhead Springs, just below. Uh, this is just above San Bernardino. This is just an installation, installation shot of the video that was projected on the steps outside the gallery at Harvey Mudd College. And did this sort of like a day trip with Rachel Mayeri, who's one of the professors at Harvey Mudd that invited me to come out and do this, just take the students to some of the spots out there uh, like this, which is where the uh, close to the water uh, fueling station, I guess, the word would be a filling station, <laughs> for where the Nestle Arrowhead trucks come and take the water from the pipelines that come down the mountainside. Um, skip over some of these things since we're a little bit short on time, but I can also show you some quick video um, what this looked like, I guess, in the gallery. Um, I also included, quickly, installation shots. I included these large-scale maps, so I had a projection of video on the wall. And then I had these large-scale maps to contextualize the video because unless you're knowing what you're looking at, it's a little bit abstract. Some people might not even recognize this as California, but in fact it is. Uh, and the maps here help explain that. These are large, like, five-by-four-inch prints, basically, with little yellow threads that connect with um, uh, larger sort of resolution aerials of the place themselves with just a description, quickly, of, of what this site is, for instance. And there was a lot that was kind of open to interpretation in the project, but that's kind of part of the, the intent. 
So I'll just play this in the background while I talk of it quickly, but um, this is just a short excerpt um, or extract from the video itself, which is about 12 minutes long. And it featured, you know, the video I shot of these sites on the ground, in the air, and then some sound recordings that I made at different uh, locations. I'll just play the beginning and then we can uh, cut it short. One of the things that was uh, kind of curious when I was filming this and researching the project was that um, one of the first times I was out there filming the, the site below Arrowhead there where the springs are, um, I was approached by a security guard and he was uh, asking me if I was one of those protesters. And I was like, well, maybe, I don't know. But I didn't say that. I said, well, what do you mean exactly? Um, I wasn't here before. This is my first time on the site. Uh, I mean, outside the site. It was on public roads. And he said, well, if few, uh, uh, last weekend, this is him speaking, there was a weird satanic group from Los Angeles that was here doing this strange ritual, and uh, apparently against the company, against the corporation, Nestle. So I looked it up, and in fact, there was this group that was doing, like a Satanist group that was doing this death curse ritual against Nestle, so, <laughs> which was completely like blew me away, this idea of like, you know, um, doing what they called a corporate death curse against the company because of them stealing water from the public resources. I thought that was actually kind of an interesting thing. So I, I found a podcast somewhere that someone had done with some of the members um, who sound like they might almost be sort of, uh, you know, descendants of the Manson clan. In some ways, the way they're talking about their practice and their, and their beliefs, um, like incredibly dedicated and, and committed folks, but they really think that what they were doing was, was actively cursing this corporation. Um, so it kind of got me thinking that maybe that's actually a good approach for artists to take on this idea of, of casting a spell or a curse, if you will, against a corporation because we really are sort of, um, you know, without resources sometimes or we don't have the power to actually enact change against corporations um, as individuals, as artists, or even as collectives, right? Um, or as even citizens and voters. So. I'm working on, or I just uh, completed a project that's currently showing in Chicago called Midstream at Twilight. And it, uh, in, in a way, I intentionally approached this project with this idea of, of uh, performing some sort of a art curse against the corporations <laughs> at, uh, that are responsible for, um, for the uh, oil pipelines that stream across the country. So this is a project about oil, but of course it's also about water because oil and water don't mix, and you have things like oil pipelines that are running beneath rivers uh, and through critical watersheds. Um, so it's incredibly appropriate to talk about it in, in this context. But what midstream at twilight means is, for those who don't know, midstream is, if you Google the term midstream without a break between the two, mid and stream, it's, it's an industrial term or term used uh, in the oil industry for the sector uh, of distribution and the transportation of oil products between the extraction, which is upstream, and the downstream, which is the actual sort of the gas station, you know, right? the actual uh, delivery of the goods. So everything in between is the midstream. And of course, twilight is, is a point of, of obscurity or decline, not just you know, what happens every day at the end of the day, but it's, it's, it's the notion that I'm intentionally implying um, or I'm intentionally stating that uh, the midstream oil sector, the oil, sec the oil industry uh, at large is at twilight. 
Uh, and that's based on not just my own sort of, uh, I guess, wishful thinking, but actual evidence. Um, for those that, I, I'm not sure if it was clear, but I've also been working with Matt over the years at the Center for Land Use Interpretation. Um, and one of the projects we did back in 2008 was all about oil. It was about Texas oil. So we called the show Texas Oil. And uh, we dived in completely. And that was at the height. That was at the boom when you know, oil was 145 bucks a gallon or so. Uh, excuse me, 145 bucks a, a barrel. Uh, and now it's down to like 40 or 50 bucks a barrel. So obviously the boom has busted again, again as it does every decade or so. Uh, I grew up in Houston, so I actually kind of saw and, and experienced this firsthand with the kind of boom and the bust of the industry. Um, so in a way, I kind of have a personal axe to grind <laughs> because I was surrounded by the oil companies, not just the corporate headquarters, but all of the, uh, all of the plants are out there east of Houston. Um, and I do think that uh, there's evidence showing that not only have we reached peak, peak oil, but I think that there's so much um, that is happening in terms of sustainable energy production and research uh, towards that, that the industry of, of, of oil and coal and natural gas is in decline. Um, so this is a way of helping usher in that decline. Um, again, the kind of dark optimism of the future is sort of reliant on the death of things like an industry. Uh, so it directly refers to that, this necessary death of an oil industry. And what I've done is I've, I've traced, um, mostly with drone uh, footage, the pipelines from the point of extraction in Alberta, which is the tar sands, of course, up in Canada. Um, and why the tar sands oil? Because a lot of that tar sands oil or upgraded bitumen from the tar sands oil finds its way across the Midwest to the Chicago area, which is where the show is currently um, at. Uh, the show is, was commissioned by the Museum of Contemporary Photography and the National uh, Natural Resources Defense Council as kind of a, a, a dual commission. So the NRDC and the MOCP, um, they found artists they, that they thought would be uh, good to discuss this issue of pet coke, which is this insidious product that comes from the production of tar sands oil. It's a petroleum coke product that's uh, incredibly filthy when it's burned, but it's burned in, in power plants. Uh, mostly in Asia, some in the Middle East, some in South America, but mostly abroad. It's pretty much been banned in America because it produces so much carbon. Um, but the pet coke piles that have been piling up on the south side of Chicago are really what, what brought about this idea of the, of the exhibition. So the NRDC see it as a way of, of getting artists to activate and to draw, um, um, not just draw attention to these piles of pet coke, but the larger issue of of where do these petroleum products come from, uh, what is the effect on humans, the local um, you know, uh, 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 communities around these giant piles, but also the people that live around refineries, people that live along the lines of the pipelines themselves, or near the extraction sites, the mines and the wells. Um, people that actually work in the industry too are at risk. Um, and it happens to be, again, some sort of terrible uh, uh, timing, terribly good timing, I should say, with the uh, protests occurring in South Dakota uh, over the pipeline um, uh, there that's, that is potentially being blocked. Apparently, the judge had yesterday blocked um, quite a bit of the construction for this pipeline that's running through uh, um, the sitting Sioux, um, standing Sioux. Standing Sioux? Or sitting Standing Rock Sioux, thank you, um, reservation. But um, this, the, the project I did um, was basically, it, it culminated in a 20-minute video uh, that's, that's it's screening, and it, it, I can show an extract from it, but maybe that would take up too much time. I can also just show some stills. 
this is a good example of, of how this relates to today's topic because this is the headwaters of the Mississippi River in northern Minnesota. So as the river actually begins as a series of kind of tributaries, it forms, of course, you know, the mighty Mississippi. But at this point, it's about four or five feet across. It's this incredibly vulnerable thing. And here you have a very obvious disturbance cutting straight through it. So what is that? That's a swath cut through the forest and across the land uh, for pipelines. Um, and the Koch brothers, the Koch Industries uh, company, actually owns this particular pipeline that runs from Alberta down to uh, the Chicago area. Actually, sorry, to uh, the, uh, the Twin Cities area in Minnesota. Um, but this gives you an idea of just how close this is to a critical water resource. It, it runs maybe about 10 feet beneath the water uh, right here. Um, and it carries, you know, millions of, of gallons of crude oil per month flowing through there. Here's a quick shot, a production still from the video showing one of the tailing ponds up in Alberta. This is uh, owned by Syncrude, which is one of the big players up there, a Canadian oil company called Syncrude. Um, and Suncor, those are the two big players. And what they do after they actually mine out the ground, they literally just scrape the oil sand out of the ground after clearing the trees. Um, they turn that disturbed land into uh, tailings ponds and dump the tailings from the production of this tar sands back into it. Uh, but of course, that's a toxic substance, so they can't allow birds to land on the water. Um, so you have the largest built structures apparently on Earth are the retention dams that form these massive tailing ponds. Uh, so we're talking about tailing lakes. I mean, they are, they are massive, enormous things you can see from outer space, clearly. Um, and they have to keep birds from landing on them, which is almost an impossibility. So that comes into play in the video because I'm, sh I'm filming these bird deterrent systems in, in a way to sort of keep the nature away from the artificial, right? They're actually trying to keep uh, birds from landing because when they land, they die. When they die, they get a lawsuit or they pay a fine. Typically, it's just a fine. But they say that for every bird that lands on the tailing ponds, that company pays ten dollars to $15,000 Canadian to the government. <laughs> so this happens, as you would imagine, hundreds of times a year or thousands of times a year. But... Um, I just wanted to sort of talk about these two projects and how they relate to the, the larger sort of um, consultancy that Lauren mentioned earlier. And I can do a brief on this because it's definitely a work in progress, but I want to sort of leave it open-ended for now since there are a lot of undefined things. Um, and maybe we can have a discussion about it later versus me just sort of explaining what we're working on uh, in detail. But essentially, this Rose Coalition of Watersheds is... Uh, at first, I mean, it's many things, but on a first read, it's, it's literally a coalition of, of territories defined by known watersheds. So these are all known watersheds. These, the different colors show the regions. So, for instance, again, I apologize, the resolution is too low. This is the Yukon River watershed region. This is the Arctic Seaboard watershed region. These are all things that are connected to what we're focusing on, which is the Intermountain West region. So these one, two, three, four, five, and actually six watershed regions define um, the sort of Intermountain West. But because the rivers all do connect pretty, pretty clearly and pretty literally on the ground with the Yukon River and with the Arctic, I'm including these for here, here for now. But you can see just what a massive area this is. This is from Alaska to the Gulf of Mexico and beyond. I mean, this is the Pacific side of Mexico down here because they are all connected through waterways. Um, 
you could argue that all of this is connected, of course, uh, as it is, right? Ecosystems are not just on the ground and in water, but they're in the air. So water moves through the air as it does through rock. But in order to kind of put some sort of cohesive frame around it, uh, we'd like to at least begin this project focusing on this territory. So um, the Coalition of Watersheds is not just a map that, that you know, is being filled with points of interest that help define this notion of sort of dark hydrology or dark ecology, which are places that, that show or illustrate damage to the environment. Um, but we want it to be something that potentially or eventually uh, could be open to the public. So it would be a, an interactive resource for uh, anyone that was interested. Uh, in collaborating with us on this because, as you probably have guessed, I mean, the world is a dense and busy place and if you just select one coal plant, you know, here, that's not going to tell the story fully or one um, wastewater spill in, in Colorado, which was 2014, 2015, that doesn't tell the story entirely either. I mean, it represents that particular part of the story, but it's really really just is one thing. So we need people, I think, to help sort of fill the map with content over time. It'll be a curated list, but it'll definitely be something that we'd like it to be interactive. Uh, I'm also including things like this. This is the oldest organism on, in North America, Pando the Trembling Giant, which is a giant aspen grove with a name, Pando, and it's a he. Apparently, aspen groves are gendered, and this particular one is a, is a male aspen grove named Pando. Um, so I'm including... Um, that's a good question. I think Pando actually comes from this word, I spread. Oh, so the term I spread is, is Latin. Um, so it's a, it's a Latin phrase. I'm not actually sure who named that, if it's someone here in the U.S. or if it predates you know, the U.S. It's very possible that it does. Um, but I'm including things like these you know, singularities because I want the project to be more than just spatial. I want it to be temporal. I want us to think about not just you know, what's, what's happened here and recently in terms of our own sort of use and misuse of the land, but also what's, what's been here long before and what will be here long after, right? So this is, uh, this is part of the idea of kind of expanding the sense of the, what some people refer to as the long now, right? The sort of idea, the sort of wide view of, of time. Um, but it won't, it won't just be a map. This, this is just an illustrative map I've, I've, I've made up using Google My Maps, but uh, it'll be quite different. But it also potentially will be a um, wiki, and I can show you a quick example of what that would look like. I mean, this is the, the wiki that we're actually running currently on a server where we're actually adding all of our own data, but it looks identical to Wikipedia. Um, and that's kind of on purpose, because we want this to be extremely user-friendly and, and, and readable um, by um, anybody that's, you know, again, wanting to collaborate. But I'll quickly just pull up uh, a quick mock-up here. Let me see if I can get this over to that screen. Sorry. And it won't let me drag it over. Sorry about that. Let me see if I can go to that mode. There we go. Okay. So, if I bring this up a little bit, this is just a, a simple mock-up, a static mock-up of what a website like this might look like. Um, but the idea is that it's not just, it's not just a, a bunch of dots on the map, but it's, it's a series of, of, of dedicated uh, pages that explain what this coalition is, but also allow you to filter out 
um, different types of maps, like featured maps, for instance, things that refer to projects that the metabolic's working on, uh, or also actions, for instance, uh, the pipeline protest. We could do uh, an action-based map that focused on that particular protest. Uh, and these are the things that might change over time, uh, obviously. But when you, when you zoom into one of these maps, you're given not just a detail of the satellite view, but you're also given the text. So uh, a person here or elsewhere might write a description of that site, and it would just appear as though it was an entry like this um, uh, for that particular listing. And the, the dream or the hope is that there'll be ways to embed video, photography, and sound recording. So it's a very multimedia um, um, a vehicle. It's not just a place where you can come and read about a place, but it's a way to come experience a place through, through multimedia as well. Uh, and again, it's extremely conceptual right now. It's, there's a lot of things that we haven't really locked down, but um, I just wanted to, to, to showcase this a little bit and to kind of explain what we're thinking. Um, This, of this red circles? Yeah. Well, the idea is sort of based on a website that uh, this friend of mine in Berlin developed about eight years ago. Um, those circles are referred to, uh, I guess, in like mapping, uh, the mapping world as heat maps. So the larger the circle, the larger number of sites might be on that particular landscape. Um, so what this website is, this is a website that basically highlights field recordings. Um, and it's a, it's a large embedded map of the entire planet. Let's see if I can zoom out. Things just sort of, there we go. Let's move over to America. All those red dots are where field recordings have been recorded. <laughs> Anyone in the public realm can, can upload a sound and attach it to a spot on the map. And again, the resolution is too tiny, you can't see this, but those are numbers in the larger circles. So for instance, in that one, um, there's 332 recordings in that one part of Colorado. And you can identify these you know, states by zooming in and realizing, oh, this is a recording in near Denver. But the idea with this is that, again, it's not just about um, mapping, but it's about experiencing a place. In this case, this is a recording of a, what, I can't quite read that, actually. Uh, it's recording of something <laughs> in Colorado. And um, what this will give the viewer and the listener is, you know, again, kind of a, height, a heightened sense of why a recording about that place is important. So I just wanted to show this to sort of illustrate this idea of the... What's of also the, nice is that it's an open source. Anybody, yeah. anybody anywhere can do a recording and submit it and become mm -hmm. part of this person's project and you know I think that speaks a lot about collective collectivity in the digital era and, and what's available to artists to put their work out there absolutely yeah no I think that uh, I think this is exactly what I mean field recordists I know a lot of field recordists and they um, this is their main way of exhibiting their work because it's immediate I mean you you just click on a spot on the map and it asks you to describe the place you know when it was recorded upload the sound and then you approve it, and then it's out there for anyone in the world to listen to. So uh, it's a pretty effective tool at, at just quickly and almost instantly sort of uh, explaining the world through sound in this case. And there's 38,000 recordings over the last eight years, so it's, it's, it's gotten pretty popular. You know? uh, it's pretty amazing, and it's all free. He doesn't charge anything for it. 
he does it in his spare time, so it's a pretty great resource. Uh, he and I actually spoke about this uh, Rose project about two weeks ago, and uh, he's not a programmer, and he is, he's really busy, and he has two kids, but he's actually happy to help us get whatever we need to make this part of the website work for us on ours. Um, yeah, and um, a little bit of backstory. So I mentioned I've work, been working with Matt at the CLUI and others at the CLUI, CLUI for years. The person that's also helping us with this project is a guy named Ryan McKinley um, up in the Bay Area. And he and Matt and I uh, did this uh, database that is used quite often uh, by all sorts of folks um, at, the center's, at the center's website called the Land Use Database. And it has a similar function in that it, it gives you a map with pins on the map that are obviously, and Matt can talk about this if he wants to, <laughs> but they're all points of interest that, uh, that um, help explain um, the nation as we know it through all the different interpretation of these particular landscapes. But uh, I mention it because um, Ryan was the, was the programmer for this uh, initially, and he's helping us. Uh, so again, I think that we might have some pretty useful um, folks helping and to get the tools you know, that we need to make this happen. Um, yeah, and the, and the wiki will be basically a place for us to go and, and contribute text about sites and projects and, and things of concern, but it's also a place that um, others can draw from. So the text that, that lives here, like Wikipedia, can be referenced and cited by anyone out there in the world at some point. So is there a language translation uh, function of this? Um, for, well, right now the way Wikipedia does it is it relies on actual people to translate to, to write their versions of a given page. So you'll notice at Wikipedia you'll have sometimes two or three languages, sometimes ten languages yeah. for like, you know, uh, a very popular thing. So it would involve probably having to uh, recruit people from those communities that know other languages, you know, Spanish and, and LA, things like uh, uh, Chinese, Tagalog, you know, par, uh, Farsi, yeah. the more kind of commonly spoken languages. But Sound and uh, sound recordings, field recordings, and um, archiving. Because we've been talking a lot here at the studio about birds, mm -hmm. and also about disparate species in connection to environmental challenge. Mm -hmm. So it would be, you know, really interesting to have, say, a filter right. that people could just do bird sounds. You know what I mean? Sure. You could go anywhere. Um, in rows and listen to the native, you know, the, the, well, native or not, invasive, but the bird sounds yeah. that are currently being recorded somewhere, and that might give you a very different, like, reading of health of the environment. Oh, time. yeah. It's incredible. I mean, that's something that, that I think Uyo can help us with, too, because he does have a search function on his website. So you can search not just Google sites, but also sounds. So you can, like, keywords. So for instance, I, can, I uploaded a sound recently. Uh, what was it? Um, something involving birds and water. But um, penguin. we could do a penguin search. Watershed is a weird word, but if we search water, you'll see, just by example, and again, you can't read this, but... Here's all the recordings that contain the word water, either in the description or in the keyword or the tag or something. See all the languages here, too. There's quite a bit. Um, there's Chinese, Japanese, German, Spanish, Swiss. It's a quick read of French. Milwaukee River Watershed. So here's someone who recorded a sound that represents the watershed to 
him or her. Let's see if it'll play. For some reason, it's frozen. But um, yeah, so he's, you know. That happens in winter. Yeah. There we go. He's saying here, uh, crickets, grasshoppers, wind in trees, rushes, jet plane, flying insect, unknown bird. And in a way, that does kind of define the sounds of that watershed, because a watershed is also not just a thing or a place, but it's a space, right? It's sort of like this uh, uh, amorphous thing that's, that's around us. It's the environment that sort of strikes us from all sides all at once, as they say. There's a McLuhan recording I came across where he refers to the word environment as if you break it down, the entomology of environment is that which, which strikes us from all sides all at once. And I've tried to find that, but I can't anywhere find a reference to it, except that I've got his recording where he says it. And I'm wondering what he meant by that, but I love the idea, you know? Because people at one point thought nature and wilderness was a dangerous thing, right? And the word environment is also considered a threat. Humans were threatened by the environment, so it strikes us at all from all sides. Um, and that kind of helps, under, I guess that underscores this idea of why, as humans, we have tried to dominate nature because wilderness has always been a scary, dangerous thing, right? Um, and we're kind of learning that it's not always the case. Uh, but those are further discussions, I suppose, we could have. Um, yeah? Well, in Greek mythology, one of the um, four quarters of the mythological universe um, was Arcadia as opposed to Parnassus. And Arcadia was meant to be wilderness-like. And the construct was largely there to reveal the dangers of the wilderness. Yeah. And differentiate it from Elysian fields or Elysia, which was a place with no dangers. Right, like a pastoral place. Well, the pastoral one was Arcadia. That's Arcadia. Okay, yeah. so Elysian so was even more ideal. Well, you know, wilderness as a notion mythologically there to incorporate um, danger. Right. Not, not, not for it to be bucolic. Mm-hmm. Now, I think really only recently have we thought of nature as a bucolic and sort of place that invites us, right? <laughs> At least in the West, you know, these, 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 all these notions are, are in America are sort of, um, in a way, tainted by the sort of Western European civilization, you know, the mindset to some of us, not all of us, of course, but the, the general sort of taught history is, I think. Yeah. That's a great question. We were actually... What, what kinds of bowls or outcomes would you well, like Well, it turns to... out that the audience is most likely me. <laughs> which, yeah. is part, right. which is part of the problem with the, with the concept. We've been working on a, a very small user group. So it might not interest anybody whatsoever. Now. But eventually. It yeah. interest people after the apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> so... It's actually part of it's part of what I call the post-apocalyptic, you know, work. Sublime. If, if, if the world as we no longer, if the world as we know it no longer functions, you may need to figure out how to organize power around watersheds. So it's good to practice these mm-hmm. things before you need them because. 
it's a little late when everybody's running around, you know, struggling over the same water to form a healthy coalition. Right. And finding the fresh water that's drinkable, yeah. that's going to so be the challenge, basically, too. basically, currently, the only person I know who's interested in this work is me, and that's not even all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are a few more of us than just you. Steve has been convinced to be interested. Yes. Jaime has had to be interested because I keep coming back to him to help me. Uh, Johnny is interested in justifying why we're thinking about this at all. Yeah, I, I should say... <laughs> I should probably also and say that. asking similar questions. <laughs> like what the? But does it complicate? The question is, does it complicate the story of bending the river yeah. to add a bigger picture? So my interest in it is that bending the river succeeds at a conversation about how to recycle our wastewater in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't really succeed in asking the question of what is our reciprocal responsibility to the Owens Valley where we get our water, you know, um, or what is the responsibility in the extraction of water we have to the future of that landscape that we've extracted the water from. Mm -hmm. So Rose is a vehicle for me to ask some of those bigger questions. The question becomes, are those two agendas as a vehicle for extending the conversation of bending the river and a vehicle for activating a community in the case we need one after the apocalypse. <laughs> a reason enough to put together the website, and if so, how does that website fit in the world? And what happens when the electricity goes out? How do you have a website function Very after nice. the apocalypse, right? <clears throat> um, so you need to make a book. <laughs> Interactive. Or just a bunch of maps. Yellow pages for roads. There you go. Delivered by Mule Factor. But no, it's, it's a good question, and we actually were kind of asking ourselves that earlier today, and just, you know, what's the audience, and what do we hope people will do with it, but um, I don't know, I can answer from other projects I've done, mapping projects, or the land use database with the centers, that the audience is quite varied, and it's, more, it's always surprising who uses it. You know, it's not just artists, filmmakers, um, but it's also people like uh, engineers, it's people like, um, I mean, activists, most definitely access that website um, to find out more about a place before they go there, you know? I think it could also be interesting to collections and collections management. For mm -hmm. example, the collection of the largest, largest collection of meteors that have fallen on planet Earth is um, at a university in Arizona. And so to be able to like network your collection to another kind of out-of-center museum like yeah. the Museum of Art and the Environment Reno that's interested in the greater West mm -hmm. and its offerings, but there is no like known vehicle for that discourse outside of Bill Fox's like muscle. True, yeah. Everybody could like upload links to their, you know, collections so that if you were traveling around the desert you would go, wow, you know. This is kind of interesting. We're right near the meteor museum, and there's that giant hole in the ground near Frozen Crater, where that largest meteor scar in the Pacific. Well, that did that lead you to that? Yeah, I think so. Yes. I was just. I mean, since you talk about sort of the apocalypse. Yeah. I mean, I'm wondering if you can encourage this kind of inquiry in a place where 
something really apocalyptic has happened, like in northern Japan, where the water has been totally, everything's been contaminated, and really be able to look at kind of the impact now and how that catastrophe has affected that place. And then maybe from that example, it will help help to spread sort of, like that's a sort of a really good example. Like a case study. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Because for us, it's like, it's 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 immediate to all of us who are aware of it, but it's it, it's not so in your face as clearly something like what's happened in Japan. Right, where they've actually had to exclude people from returning home, where they've basically said this is a uh, you know, restricted place forever, what? you know, for your lifetime, for your children's lifetime. Yeah, it's and very I think real. That there's a real, you know, in terms of what I hear from. My friends who live in Japan, like what the government, what the government is divulging about these places versus yeah. the, re- the real yeah. facts of the matter are very, very different. Yeah. And so, therefore, it would also help to shed light on kind of how, in practice, governments relate to these kinds of catastrophes. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's an excellent, an excellent yeah. idea. How do you? It's both a question and a concept. Like, how do you incorporate case studies? How do you encourage them mm-hmm. um, so that you have an application to the concept of the website and also see what is the what is the function of maintaining that over time? Because when you have a catastrophe, the narrative about it changes with time. And it's, it? Yeah, that's it important. It takes a lot of time to really see, sometimes a generation or two. Yeah. You mean like the effects of that on the land? Yeah. Yeah. Like a, a, a nuclear spill or a tsunami yeah. with radioactive material, that's not going to be something that resolves itself in a year mm-hmm. or even 20 years. Yeah. So how does the website have a kind of um, invigilation? You know, is that just because people see it and they add their own perceptions or do you actually try and set a project in motion Beyond just the like knowledge of right. aspect of mm-hmm. something, because I think part of this post-apocalyptic narrative is information can be repressed by people who don't want hysterical reactions to it. Yeah, you know. So also, people do suffer from overexposure, and so you have to find ways around that. Like you know, Fukushima is one of these stories that has been widely reported, photographed. People have made films about it already by now. Artists have done projects about it, but I think people do become numb sometimes to just the sort of like the heavy-handedness of news. So they want something more, you know. And this is, I think, again, where where art can really kind of come through as a way of explaining this, these places, these sites, these problems in a more articulate way. Interesting um, unspoken narrative that you find out as you go along, like the building next door to us, the K and M warehouse. Um, is avoiding gentrification because it's so bleeping dirty yeah. that it doesn't make <laughs> financial sense for developers. They just don't want to get in there. They yeah. can't clean it up at a profit and develop it. So um. we watch four different escrow things fall through because people find out that it's way dirtier than it's cost effective for them to make money at. So. Wow. So far, we're still an island around here, not because the gentrification market isn't driving things, but because it's so dirty that it's not cost-effective for property developers 
to do anything. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of interesting when you look at uh, land use. The people would write these narratives down. It would give you a much a different map of the uh, way toxicity plays itself out over time. Because it's dirty here because of the petroleum industry, mm-hmm. right? So it reveals what was here just before us. But there will always be that. Mm-hmm. There's that with uranium mining. There's that with all kinds of industry. Plastic. <laughs> it's in the ocean. Yeah. You know, all the you know farming. There's mm-hmm. all these different things that have a shelf life of how long it's going to take for the toxicity of the practice to wear off, and how that's going to drive gentrification and all kinds. Of things. Yeah. One but, idea of this for this website potentially, or maybe it's interesting to kind of think of a physical or partially maybe physical, digital mm-hmm. sort of version of this um, could be something analog to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Huh. Uh, right. I just watched that movie the other day. <laughs> we were in a hotel room and and um, it came up and it just makes me think of this possibly being the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Watershed. Because you know that the, the doomsday is coming, but what do you do until that point, yeah, so right? Yes, kind of, it, it becomes a way of navigating a real landscape um, and giving you information about what's out there. Where is the toxicity? Yeah. What are the, what are all these different? Um, what is Nestle doing on this site? Yeah. What, what is happening to our water? And if it's a comprehensive enough guide, you could actually use it to navigate your way through the watersheds of the world. And you mm-hmm. know, each different watersheds could be more or less developed depending on how much information is added by the users. Sure. But it People really live could in be that, that kind of resource. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think it has to be selective. What's really you know. interesting is how infrastructure readaption transforms the watershed. So, for example, the Three Gorges Dam has changed the access to the way the world rotates, apparently. There's so much concrete that there's actually going to change. Um, but wow. it's also radically redefined the watersheds of a large enough part of a continent that you would be able to, you'd have to kind of remap it eventually. But similarly, when we're when we're looking at uh, the Colorado, there's discussion about undamming. Um, I forgot what the name of one of those dams are, but uh, like along Lake Powell, you mean, yeah, or further? Right next to yeah. it. Glen Canyon. Glen Canyon, Canyon right. Um, that would that's because the amount of evaporation that's occurring mm. is not cost effective. Yeah, it's pretty catastrophic. And if they then rewild they'll end up rewilding probably the area that the water would flow into, that becomes a very interesting again case study. Mm-hmm. You know, to be able to say, Well, that's a real potential project. We should you know, lasso things around, not just crises, but potentiality, so that people who come to this website can also position themselves intelligently, strategically. Yeah, there is, there are some, of course, there's a lot of projects out there, dam projects, but there is, there seems to be a growing interest in taking these dams down. Um, and there have been a few that have been removed. Um, so I think the precedent's out there. It's just a matter of making the case for more dam removal. And there is an artist uh, group I just uh, learned about last year. They got a Creative Capital Grant that's working on a film about, about de-damming <laughs> Central America and South America. 
So there are artist projects, which is pretty inspiring to think about. You know, there people are out there getting the word out. So. Yeah, I'll look it up. I, I saw them present a couple of two years ago, but um, I forgot what the name of the group. But I know. Yeah. Just take it down. Well, that was the idea behind putting up that image that I used for the um, San Francisco Tito. What is it? The dam that uh, was brought down that I used? Yes. Um, what is today's event called? Dark hydrology. But that dam uh, is a good example of sort of an iconic image. I mean, this, this failed, this dam failed um, because it was structurally unsound, but you know, this was one, of the, was one of the dams that actually helped or, or terraformed uh, the water, the hydrology of the mountains just north of here, north of L.A. Um, so that, I think this image is, should be used, one of these images, but this one in particular should be used as sort of a, a, a symbolic image to um, define, you know, that phase. No, no, this is like an original photo right after the dam broke in the 20s. It's pretty incredible. I think there's remnants out there still lying on its side, you know, in the, in the, in the canyon itself. But um, a lot of it was removed, but there are some remnants out there, 20th century fossils. But, I mean, some of us actually see that image as one of hope, you know? <laughs> uh, a destruction can actually be a creation in other ways, right? So, Cool. Well, maybe, uh, are there any other questions, or should we wrap it up? Responses? Yeah, I'd love to hear from people in the studio team, you know, uh, because you guys hang around with a lot of this content. So if there's anybody who has any responses to any of this, yeah. questions... I'll assume any length to be uh, that you don't get the point. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fine too. It's oh all helpful feedback. Huh? It's, helpful. it's helpful for me actually to see this interlinking of watersheds because I've heard you more talk to Jaime about it. Yeah, this uh, is. Taking a look at between. Like, I never really understood. I mean, I've only seen for myself from Mono Lake down to Long Beach. And I can mm-hmm. understand that because I've seen it. But actually seeing this mapping and knowing. Oh, I've been there. Oh, I've been there. I've been there. And this is actually all connected. It's all part of the same river and street and water system. It really helps to make it so much more tangible to me uh-huh. and to see how everything is influencing everything else and how, how wide it is. Yeah, these, uh, this map is all... Uh, so Jaime created the original map, I guess, using another program. And I took those vectors and, and sort of imported them into this map. But... Um, the same shapes, the same landscapes. But it is, it's pretty incredible when you realize just how massive some of these watersheds are. Like the Humboldt. That's the, watershed right there. That's the Humboldt watershed, exactly, as part of the Great Basin watershed region. Uh, and you can't, well, you can't quite tell unless they switch it over to satellite, but you kind of begin to recognize places. You're like, oh, yeah, look, you know, Battle Mountain, uh, Salt Lake City, you know. Well, watersheds are, are, in a sense, they're kind of fractal and that, that you can, Oops, I just moved you can it. look at a very, very large, I mean, I guess that it is finite in, in the sense that everything in the Colorado watershed flows through that river to the ocean, but then as you start looking deeper and deeper and deeper, you can find watersheds that are smaller and smaller all the time, almost into That's infinity. That's true, yeah. You know, almost into, at some point, within one canyon, there's one little gully that has 
a couple little drops that feed into it. It's like microcosms within the larger, yeah. What would you call this entire strip of watershed that you have highlighted? Rose. (laughs) I think that's the... Down near Mexico, you mean? Yeah, like what's the um, final cutoff? Is that there's just simply no well, water connecting down? Is it's all interconnected right now? It is ex- exactly. Well, it's it's a tough call because you know, I mean, even if we ex- if we exclude the Pacific coastal area, then you don't get to include any of the Owens or you know L.A. and where this is where all the metabolic projects are happening. So, if you kind of extend this watershed, the Northern Mojave, from the Pacific Ocean watershed region. Or you can, I mean, this is where it gets really kind of subjective pretty quickly. Um, but there are... For Bill Fox, it goes all the way down to Patagonia. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so, he continues he, it further. He, he traces it all the way down to Patagonia. Again, following how the, uh, the Rockies become the Andes, you know, that there's, there's, there's a continuity of that he traces, and then he goes right to the Pacific Islands, uh, including uh, the islands of the South Pacific. Uh, you so, could cut, yeah. yeah. I so, guess we were trying to lock it to. the conference uh, every year that uh, every three years, um, he presents work from all the way down from Patagonia up to the Bering Straits. And, so it's the um, full Pacific the full, linear. Yeah. Huh. I guess the idea was to limit it to North America. For this phase, you know, once you could. How were these watersheds defined? I mean, like, who decided this the scale? Because um, you was talking about, you could obviously you can go down to a micro scale and then you can go into the right. entire Western US. Western. I, I think this is a US agency that defined these watersheds uh, going down into Mexico. Is the eastern border the continental divide? Yeah. Yes, it's about flow direction. Yeah, so if I, I guess the reason that the Costa de Chiapas watershed stops there is because there is a defining feature, probably a water feature, but it could be a, a contour line. So the water flows westward here and then eastward here, which is probably like their divide. You know, it's like, like a the ridge line or something. Exactly. Yeah. Actually, that's a river. It looks like a river. Yeah, you're right. So this it runs along these streets. I just moved it again. Whoops, undo. So it is the actual river that defines that, probably right down the middle. And again, you're splitting hairs because what is the middle of a river? Because the river is always like the Rio Grande is shifting dramatically, you know, over years. This one, Costa de Chiapas. We're looking at the border between Mexico and Guatemala. So that's the river here, right? Of course. That name for a watershed, was that internationally recognized? I, I think most. Like where was the yeah. original like border lines that, that you have that are mapping out all of these? Um, um, I mean, that was lifted from Jaime's. Well, it yeah, it's just the same data set. Like, there's yeah. kind of two different ways of, of defining these zones. One of them is actual physical watersheds wherein all the water collects and runs to one place, like the Colorado or the Great Basin. Yeah. Watershed. Yeah. Then there's ones like the Great Basin. Oh, I see. Yeah. Where it's there. There's a name for where water doesn't actually run off to the ocean. There's many different rivers, and they kind of all kind of run into the ground in a sense. And there's mm-hmm. a sort of possibly a common aquifer underneath. But then the ones that are near the ocean, often it's called like the Pacific Seaboard mm-hmm. water, and it, and it's not actually one watershed. It's just 
kind of a grouping of all these different watersheds, which are smaller, and they all have individual rivers that run to the ocean. But I guess what defines them as being linked is that they do all flow to the ocean versus into a landlocked space like for, the Great Basin. For John Wellesley Powell, the explorer of uh, the West, commissioned after the Civil War um, to figure out where westward expansion would go, um, his maps of the watershed refer to um, sustainability. Where is the water if you wanted to settle people there mm-hmm. and have livestock and have agriculture? So sometimes people refer to watershed in an Anthropocene way. Like, where's the water source to support how much life? If you're talking about human habitat with livestock and farming, not importing food from elsewhere, uh, not importing fuel from elsewhere, where's there enough trees, fuel, like, you know, but it's all organized around watershed. Certainly the Native Americans divided all their tribal lands by watershed um, because it had it had to support life and it had to support the animal life that they lived connected to. So, you know, one of the ways that we looked at watershed upstate New York, hundreds of miles away. Surrounded by salt water. (laughs) It's a constrained little resource. So one of the things I think you have here that you probably want to watch out for is that you've got, it looks like you've got some national boundaries. And so the watersheds are being combined both in terms of, you know, where, how the water flows. Uh But, you know, uh, I think that's maybe why on the board there's that, there's that divide along the border of Mexico and, and Guatemala, and then also because here the river, on yeah, the Rio Grande. You but know, it is also like, a water feature. It's the same. Yeah. it's the same watershed. It's just being. It's a different watershed on in Mexico versus the United States because right. waters, you know. And then you get into you know, jurisdictional issues like yeah. waters are are you know owned by the nation, right? But in the United States. Water is actually owned by the states and by the tribes. Uh-huh. 
Um, so sovereignty becomes you know, a so, so big yeah, question. Yeah. Definition of sovereignty, but it, yeah. It, so it's only it's only in cases where um, like where there are interstate compacts like on the Colorado River. Uh, I think there's a some there's a I think there's a compact or a settlement along the uh, Rio Grande as well, and in other places like between Montana and Wyoming. Which goes where and who and, you know, there, accesses you what? have actually a negotiated agreement between different states about how to share the water. Otherwise, states own and control the water uh-huh. in, the, in each state. In yeah. Oh, yeah. Like if you look at uh, how the Colorado River works its way down into Mexico, I mean, it just gets completely siphoned and siphoned and siphoned and like, uh, you know, heavily toxic, toxified and, and saline almost with the minerals by the time it reaches Mexico. And it completely fragments and becomes this huge swath of, of mud flats at one point. I mean, it's pretty clear that kind of the violence of that river is pretty visible from a satellite view. <laughs> you know, as soon as it crosses the border. The Mexico is pretty credible. Yeah. yeah, no, it's true. But the whole idea is to yeah, decolonize the map. You right? an interesting question, John, because Rose, as a, as a concept, was to actually strip outmoded state and country borders if mm-hmm. you look at outmoded not serving the watershed. Um, and reconstruct a sense of communal, um, communal stewardship of the watershed that perhaps redefines country and city and ownership in and of itself. You know, Bolivia is the first country in the world that wrote a constitution stating that uh, water is a resource that belongs to all living things. Up to, the, up to then, there was there's no mention of water in any um, constitution. And that was written just after the Cochabamba Water Wars in 1993 and after the UN actually made a declaration stating that water is a human right and cannot be uh, bought by corporation in a foreign country for export. So I think it was a harbinger of things to come and it sort of speaks to what Rose as a concept could do. But it also brings up a lot of questions about identifying with maps, because when most people look at a map, they look for borders that they're familiar with. Sure. That's kind of why we intentionally want to remove those. I mean, you see the U.S. has been grayed out here. It's still visible, but in in the mock-up that we created, it's not. So we really want to depoliticize or decolonize the map. As much as possible. I mean, there there will be an, an option to click on, you know, like labels, so you can uh, coordinate yourself to where you're looking at what you're looking at. But uh, when you first come to the site, ideally, it would be a, a depoliticized landscape of space within water and land, basically. Look at that amount that I normally just go, oh yeah, I know that. And mm-hmm. one second glance, but, but you know, especially when you zoom in, you're like, wait, I know where I am, but I don't know where I am. And just mm-hmm. looking at everything completely different way. Yeah. Borders, like somewhere I saw Salt Lake, and I was like, oh, okay, we're Utah here. And yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the power of maps, really draw you into the sort of conceptual, sort of creative space for sure, mentally. Yeah. Sake of, uh, for the sake of our time, um, yes. we'll, we'll stop here, but thank you for bringing up the, the, the problems and 
and uh, challenges of this kind of inquiry. I mean, I, I think this is probably going to be the first of more discussions because I, I do think that there's a place for thinking about the unique role the internet can play in remapping, repoliticizing, redefining um, stewardship of water and challenge to water and thereby to life. Um, that's a discussion that is specifically absent from um, electoral politics yeah. with the exception of Hillary Clinton <laughs> hosting, uh, sorry, the Democratic Party hosting a key debate uh, during the primaries in Flint, Michigan, which has been a place of particularly public infrastructure collapse. But outside of that action that she took and he took and the Democratic Party took, there is no real conversation about uh, the nature of water ownership. Uh, what we are seeing with Standing Rock right now that uh, we're going to see a lot more resistance to the uh, corporate um, takeover of resources by the indigenous community and by a lot of us who identify more with the indigenous communities than with the corporate communities and build that maybe the time has come for direct action. Yeah, so I think definitely. we're about to see a lot more of that. So what is the role of the web in that kind of participatory archiving? Yeah. So thank you very much, yeah, Steve. And, uh, we hope you enjoyed the latest Explorers Club session. For more information, please visit metabolicstudio.org. And thank you.